G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Tim, I can't believe it. We're at the end of season two already. I don't know how it happened, but it has. Um, and we have done two full seasons of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast already. So well done. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're there. The show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Time flies when you're having fun, mate. We are indeed on our last episode for the season, uh, pending any last-minute special additions I might be able to pull together. And before we take a short break and regroup for season three, we're going to use this episode to have a bit of a recap and talk about Genesis 2 in terms of the bigger picture. Yeah, it's a good idea, you know. Um, we've, we've covered a lot over the last uh, season and, you know, we tend to go over things in detail, but it's nice to, uh, to step back and get a wider view, which is what I do every time I buy a new pair of pants. <laughs> yeah, but uh, before we get into that, we... We could probably talk about some of the highlights of the season so far. We kicked it off this time around with our first Halloween special, which was really fun. Halloween seems so long ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. Uh, but yes, it's kind of interesting to see how the Bible translators have dealt with the issue of transition from the first creation story that we discussed in Genesis 1 to the one that we've been looking at lately in Genesis 2 and how that produces some very interesting variations on the introduction to the Eden story in the translation. Yeah, that's right. In the end, we decided that our second creation story, or Genesis 2 proper, if you like, really begins at chapter 2 and verse 4b. We had a blast recording our episode on Superman and that deep dive into the weird world of satanic cults on YouTube. That's got to be the strangest episode we've done to date. But I'm always looking for an opportunity to improve, so look out for more weirdness next season. I really enjoyed our exploration of the ancient Near East while we were searching for the location of the Garden of Eden. We looked at some really crazy interpretations of those geographical markers and what they might have meant. Yeah, and one of the strangest things, I guess, uh, was seeing the first century story. Joseph was talking about the Ganges River in India as being one of the four rivers that's mentioned in uh, Genesis 2. Interesting. Yeah, that certainly was really weird. The funniest thing about that is that he was actually tracking with the intent of the author in terms of encompassing the known world at the time, which means that he was getting the message and he was basically making it contemporary for his day by expanding the borders of the known world so that the message remained consistent. And I think that's quite honourable. It seems that, at least in this instance, Josephus was more interested in the affirmation of the text rather than the detail and the historical geographical correctness of the text. I'm not saying that we should rewrite scripture or talk about it in modern terms in order to get the message across necessarily, but it does help to be able to put things in a way that's clearly understood by your audience. And I think Josephus did that well, and we can learn from that example. Just uh, hearing you say Josephus and I say uh, Josephus, whoever I said it, just reminds me how uh, bad my, my pronunciations are, but that's okay. Hey, we all Made have a lot to learn. Um, and it was also uh, fascinating coming to terms of the identity of the man in the story we talked a lot about the man the man in the story and his function in that garden and we still don't know his name but uh, at least we know why don't we 
Yeah, we started to see that the man in the story represents all of us, and he is, in a sense, the archetype for all of humanity. So leaving his name out of the story has the effect of helping us to internalise the message rather than apply it solely to one guy in history. And that's going to remain an important message as we continue through next season. I also really enjoyed the guests that we featured on the show, namely Dr Judd Burton and Doug Overmeyer from Sears C Ministries. Both of our guests brought some really interesting and refreshing perspective to our discussions, and it was great to spend time with them. We might see if we can get them back next season. Another thing I really enjoyed this season was exploring the dream vision that the man has when God puts him into this deep sleep and teaches him how he is to view women. I think that speaks volumes just on its own. Yeah, and I think we managed to give some uh, some hyper-literalists a bit of a gentle ribbing while we explained that one. Oh, we could call that one of our X-rated episodes, right? Get it? X-rays? Oh, boy. Giant questions, but, but bad jokes. <laughs> no, I'll try to be serious now. I, I kind of mentioned it in passing, but I didn't really go into any detail about the nature of Covenant in that episode. I talked about the connection between the man of Genesis 2 and Abram in Genesis 15 and the way that they both had this experience of God showing them something while they were in a deep sleep or a visionary state. It's like God is always teaching us just the way that Jesus was always teaching. He doesn't waste any opportunities. But I didn't really connect that in that episode with what we learned in the following episode about faithfulness and allegiance versus apostasy when it came to the discussion of marriage between the man and woman. But I think it would be fair to say that in both situations, the Abrahamic covenant and the man's dream in the garden, we have blessing connected to faithfulness because of something revealed by God in a vision. And I think that's important to keep in mind because it echoes a truth that carries throughout the word of God that in keeping his word and staying faithful to God is the source of our blessing. Speaking of blessings, a lot of great things happened in Season 2 and a lot of great personal achievements. Somehow I managed to get a podcast prep just about every week while renovating my son's bedroom. Although we had trouble getting a guest to interview last week. Uh, apologies about that, guys. Uh, and Chris broke a 20-year drought, finally got himself a carton of eggnog. Sweet noggy goodness. Genesis 2 was such a beautiful experience to read through and to study over these last few months and... It should be, because it is the definitive biblical text for laying out the ideals that we strive for as humans. Back in our first season, when we started talking about the distinctive features of humankind, one of those distinctive features that we talked about was the ability to recognise and to strive for ideals. And I think that is exactly why we have Genesis 2 written the way that it is, because it gives us a sense of aspiration for our future hope, but it also gives us something to reflect on and to contemplate how far we've fallen and just how much we have lost. One of the things that I love about Genesis 2 is the way in which the author manages to write about the man and later the woman also in such a way as to be able to make the story applicable to all of us. This isn't just a story about one man and one woman. This is a story about the human condition. This is about all of us. Beautifully said as, uh, as always, Tim. And I get a real sense that one of the major drives behind the narrative as we proceed through uh, Genesis 2, is the idea of growing up or coming of age, something which I think uh, you and I are still doing. Um, and even though the man in our text is always called the man and he's not referred to as the boy or the child or Grogu or Baby Yoda, uh, it seems as if he is going through stages of increasing responsibility. Yeah, 
first he has the rules explained to him in this new environment that he's been placed in, and then he gets a job to do, which he dutifully performs. And then that task expands further as he names not only the domestic animals, but also the wild animals. And he comes to realise that the task is bigger than himself, and then the man is forced to look beyond himself and to see someone else as being equally valuable in helping to perform the task at hand. The chapter concludes with the man learning that he steps into the fullness of his being only when he matures, forms a family of his own. Perhaps rather than talking about it in terms of coming of age or starting a family, it's better put in terms of sonship. When we consider that the destiny of believers is to be children of God, literally sons of God, it makes sense that Genesis 2 is explaining to us how we are to function as God's sons on earth, just as he has divine sons in heaven. But we often don't see it in Genesis 2 because we don't get referred to as God's sons in so many words. We don't get the titles. We don't have the terminology. What we do have is the function. Traditionally, in family life, it's the role of the children to continue the work that the father sets out for them to do and they're to represent him as they continue that work. A message delivered by the son is considered to have come from the father himself. Agrarian life is simply growing up to take on the family business and as we learned, although the tradition is that a man brings his wife into his father's home, the scripture teaches that he's not a man until he can look after himself and be independent of his parents. From that time on, his loyalty is to his wife as hers is to him and only then can they operate in that ideal model of being God's children. Again, this is not intended to make non-married people feel like they're not part of the family or not modelling God as they should. It's a picture of norms and ideals and the typical way of ordinary Israelite family life. When we were reading chapter 1, we learned that we had God providing the model of the working week with six days of labour and one day of rest. And we saw that God's work was to bring order to the cosmos. This time, as we went through Genesis 2, we saw a model of family life illustrated as a man growing up and growing into his responsibilities. So instead of the working week as the model, we have the development of a man into a family head. I mentioned that the man is not called a son in the sense of that explicit terminology, but it's another thing to notice that he isn't spoken of in terms of an immature child or a developing youth or something of that nature. He's a man from start to finish, and according to this text, he was never anything different, so he's not treated like a boy or thought of as a kid growing up. Instead, he's a man coming to terms with what it means to be a man. Speaking of this man's identity and who he is being, we can now look back on Genesis 1 as a description of God's cosmic temple in which the man functions as priest. He remains a priest, but chapter 2 shifts the focus from this role into something more akin to kingship. And in Genesis 2, we find the man taking on the role of kingship, but it's important that we make a critical distinction between the kingship that the Bible is illustrating for us in Genesis 2 and the kind of kingship that was familiar in the ancient Near East. This is where scripture takes a major leap away from the cultural norms of its time because in Israel, the king leads by serving the people, and not by tyranny. We saw that demonstrated in the phrase, to serve the ground and to keep it. So that means that scripture, as far as it is concerned with the way of the world that surrounded and tempted the Israelites, is overwhelmingly negative toward kingship the way the world does it. This is why we don't get explicit terminology of kingship in Genesis 2. We see it merely reflected in the roles and responsibilities that God gives the man to do. We need to remember that this man is the archetype of all of us, and that means that kingship belongs to us all under God, not to one federal head. That means that in the course of the two chapters that we've just covered, we've seen the summary of the calling that God extends to his people. We see this extended to Israel in the law, and as an example, you can look at Exodus 19, verse 6, 
and to the church in the first century. We have First Peter 2.9, Revelation 1.6, Revelation 5.10. This thing that the people of God are called to do finds its earliest expression in the first chapters of Genesis. All this talk about ideals that I mentioned before and that we talked about earlier last season, it's not just about ideal conditions and things being perfect and everything being lovely. It's about the ideal function that we are supposed to be doing in the world. We're supposed to be representations of God that facilitate the movement of God toward the world he's created and reciprocally receive those in the world who are drawing near to God. We are called to do the work that God does, and that means the furtherance of creation by bringing order to the world around us. And order is an expression of the nature of God. So we must conform to his nature and provide an example that encourages others to also be conformed to the divine nature. We're meant to be looking after the world as stewards of it, not as lords over it. And we're to show the love of the Father in the care taken of his children and the things he's made. Well, that pretty much wraps up our coverage of Genesis 2, at least the, uh, the highlight reel anyway. And there is so much more to look forward to next season after we return from a short study break. Yeah, it's going to be nice to get a few other jobs out of the way instead of having them compete with my podcast prep time. And then I'll be able to bring you all some more deep dives for season three and some guest interviews too. So don't go away. Get your questions in for next season's Giant Answers segments. Don't forget, we'll take questions from the Primeval History as well as all your questions about the Biblical Giants. Just go to giantanswers.com to get those in. Indeed. And it's time for one last Giant Answers Q&A segment before we wrap it all up and put a bow on it. I want to hear your Giant Questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your all right, let's have it then. Lisa from Facebook Land asks, we know Nephilim means the fallen ones. We know that angels fell from their first estate, service to God, eternity with God, into sin. Fallen angels fell, and their offspring, angel, human offspring, where did they fall from? They did not fall from a first estate, from service to God, eternity with God. They were born inherently sinful. So again, to be called fallen ones, Nephilim, what did they fall from? Mm. Well, this is an interesting issue and one that gets raised all the time. I go into some depth on this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, but since this is such a frequently misunderstood concept, it's one that I am prepared to talk about a bit more in the hopes that we, as the body of Christ, are moving towards some degree of separation from vain traditions and ignorance of the text and into a degree of understanding that's a bit more credible. Firstly, I should point out that Lisa is correct when she says that the Nephilim don't really fall in this text. They're simply born into existence, and as far as the text of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is concerned, they're not spoken of as having done anything wrong. So why this language of fallen ones? Well, as I say, it's got a lot to do with tradition, because ever since medieval times, we've been told that there's some kind of a fall involved and that comes from the notion of fallen angels which is one way to look at what the sons of God actually did. For many of us, the idea of fallen angels conjures up pictures of creatures with wings dropping out of the sky like Icarus falling out of his dad's chariot. But the reality is that if we consider heaven to be the place where God is, 
and where he does his thing, then in this text we ought to be considering the Garden of Eden as that place because that's where God is and that's where he does his thing in this text. But even if you consider that the language of falling is connected to the concept of some kind of height in real space-time, you've got to remember that the space and time that we construct in order to have language in which to wrap these concepts is just a man-made construction. Certainly Eden was a high place to use the language of cosmic geography, and we can see in Genesis 2 that it's the origin of four rivers, which means that it's got some elevation. And Ezekiel 28 makes it very clear when he calls Eden explicitly a mountain. But even so, it's the concept of elevation and the idea that the holy God should be in some elevated position that's really the point. Because we would have spoken the same way about Eden, even if it were in the marshlands of Babylon. This concept of height is meant to convey the separation between the profane and the divine. So we can do away with the concept of divine beings falling out of the sky or even tumbling down a mountainside, if you want to be graphic about it. In fact, earlier traditions from the Second Temple period portray the angels as teachers and guides for mankind who brought the instruction of God and helped mankind along the way. And they get that reading, by the way, that they interpret the language of the angel of the presence or the angel of the Lord, which are different ways that the scribes talked about Moses having received the law on Sinai. So they go from Moses receiving the ten words to a complete delivery of the entire Torah to them saying that the Torah was given by angels in the time before Moses so that the rabbis can say that even Adam had Torah in the garden. And they need Torah as early as possible because this is how they interpret things like the sacrifices that Cain and Abel brought and other situations that seem to go without resolution if we just read the text at face value. Now, the rabbis are all about Torah. Everyone reads Torah every day. That's all they do. According to the rabbis, everything's about Torah. So that places the angels squarely in the domain of ordinary men because they've got this teaching job to do, which explains how it came about that mankind experienced something of a technological advancement in Genesis 4 where we start reading about metalwork, tent-making, music and various other technologies. In the second temple period, these advancements are explained by the teaching ministry of angels. It makes sense then to consider that these dealings between divine beings and humans became quite personal. And you can see how it leaves open the possibility of temptation to form relationships that are ontologically unnatural. And this means that in terms of real space and time, we don't have angels descending to form relationships with these women that they had admired from afar. Instead, it becomes simply a relationship barrier that is broken against the will of God. So it should be clear enough then that there really isn't some kind of a fall from heaven being talked about here, at least not in physical terms. But getting back to the notion of cosmic geography and that concept of a stratified or tiered cosmology in which the divine realm is up in the sky and the earthly realm is, of course, on the land and the bad place is beneath the surface of the land where the dead are buried, if we look at things that way, we can picture a fall in terms of the denial of access. You know, oh, what's that? You want to be down there with the women? Okay, fine, but don't expect to be able to come back here. You're banned. Let's see how that works out for you. So if we think about levels of access between different realms and we have the divine realm and the human realm and the realm of the dead, those three all separated like that, then we can change the terminology from a fall to a limitation of access, which is what I think is really going on. And if we talk about it in terms of limited access, then that does away with the problem that we have when we say fall and we immediately think of heaven being in the sky and all those kind of cosmological ideas. Those are useful literary devices, but they don't help us to understand in modern terms, I suppose, what's going on. So, yeah, that 
they're framed in more modern terms, but I, I think it's really best to try and stick with the language that the scriptural authors use because it keeps us in that mindset. And we just have to bear in mind that our modern definitions don't work. We need to use the definitions that fit the patterns of scriptural usage and they're not going to conform to our dictionary definitions and that sort of thing. Having got this language of falling under control, the next thing that we would normally be looking at is what people mean when they say angels, but Lisa has been very good at reading and comprehending the words on the pages of her Bible because she can at least appreciate that we're not talking about the angels here. We are in fact talking about the sons of those angels who are called Nephilim. And Lisa is quite right to ask the question because according to this text, the Nephilim did not fall. If we look at the way we just described this language of falling and we put it in more modern terms and we talk about the abandonment of a position that enabled access to all areas, which was given up for limited access that would enable some earthly freedoms that the angels had not previously enjoyed, i.e. marriage and sex and offspring, and we compare that situation to the Nephilim, we find that the two situations are not comparable. The Nephilim did not give up a high position to accept something lower that came with earthly privileges. Instead, the Nephilim were simply born on the earth and they lived and died on the earth. And what they did to bring them the condemnation they received is described in terms of violence rather than sexual misdeeds or other transgressions of that nature. Now, people might argue with my choice of words here and say, well, surely a fall just counts as a sin that results in judgment. So Adam and Eve committed a sin that resulted in a judgment and these rebellious sons of God also committed a sin that resulted in judgment. The Nephilim committed sin that resulted in judgment, so it just keeps happening. Um, can't we just call that a fall? Well, we call that a fall when we talk about Adam and Eve, don't we? We say that that was the fall of man, so if we have the fall of man and we have the fall of the angels, then it makes sense to think of the progeny of those fallen angels as fallen too, because they also committed a sin that resulted in judgment. So... I suppose you could try and argue for that, but then we're left with a problem because the situation of Adam and Eve, we had a transgression which resulted in a loss of access to the place where God lives. And then, of course, you have Cain and Abel. And nobody talks about their situation in terms of a fall, even though technically that's the first time that Scripture uses the term sin. So we have to ask why Cain isn't called a fallen one or something like that. Cain gets exiled, but he does not lose access to the divine realm because he never had it. When we look at the rebellious sons of God, we have a choice made, which is shown in the text of Genesis as seeing and taking the human women, and which is expressed in First Enoch as a great sin committed by a group of angels who took it upon themselves to swear an oath to carry it out deliberately. You don't see that anywhere else in the primeval history, but again, it results in this lack of access to the place where God is, according to the witness of Jude and Peter. Now, when we look at the Nephilim, they make no decisions, unlike Cain, who was given advice on what to do by God himself, and they suffer no deceptions. They're simply violent creatures that were created by an act of sin. They have no place in the world that God created, either in terms of space and time or, cosmologically speaking, no place for the soul to inhabit. They were born without a purpose or destiny, and yet God will find ways to use them, as we discover later in Scripture. There's just no escaping the fact that the Nephilim never fell in any way. They simply are a product of the appetites of the angels and their existence is simply a continuance of those appetites. So that really begs the question, why do people insist on saying that they are the fallen ones? Because if we're doing this correctly, we would have to say that these creatures were the sons of the fallen ones, assuming that the fallen ones are the sons of God. And if that were the case, then the correct term in Hebrew for these offspring would actually be 
B'nai Ha-Nofalim, sons of the fallen ones. That's very different from the suggested verb form Nafal. Since we went there, let's get into some more textual issues. I mentioned this before, but we'll go over it again because you can't answer the question really without addressing this. The word Nephilim is, like most other Hebrew words, based on a triliteral root, which translated into our English, or transliterated, should I say, uh, would give us the letters N, P, and L, followed by a suffix, which is the M at the end, and that is indicative of the masculine plural form, or where we see it in Aramaic, it's N at the end, but the triliteral of the three letters N, P, and L is all that appears in the text before that suffix because there are no vowels in the original Hebrew manuscripts, which means that we need to rely on context to supply something appropriate to make sense of the word. If we use in English our letter A to fill those spots between the consonants, well, then we get nafal, which means to fall or lie down. And that is, of course, the go-to definition for those people who are content to rely on medieval traditions instead of textual analysis. Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Simeon, said Nephilim denotes that they hurled the world down. They themselves fell from the world and they filled the world with abortions through their immorality, which is a direct quote from the Genesis Rabbah that gives three different uses for the terminology associated with this word. And really the only way that has any legitimacy is if we consider the notion of falling upon others as in battle. The Genesis Rabbah is a medieval rabbinic text, so we're talking about a thousand years after Christ, which is at least 1,600 years later than the source text of Genesis 6, some would argue that it's closer to two and a half thousand years later. Incidentally, the mention of abortions there in that quote comes from a different verb form based on the same root, which we would spell as nephel, putting the letter E in those vowel slots. That's a word typically used for stillborn births. You can understand why it doesn't fit in this context in Genesis 6. These offspring were very much alive, but there are other more compelling reasons to go with another interpretation, as we're going to see. And I think that once you've seen this, you're going to think twice before diving into medieval period literature as your default commentary on scripture. Incidentally, I do go through all this stuff in chapter four of my book. But anyway, if we go back to the root form again, and this time we try some different vowels, we can produce nephil. So that's N-E-P-H-I-Y-L in transliteration. And that is the form which gives us the word giants. So what do we have that supports the interpretation of this word as meaning giants? Well, for anyone who's been following studies on the Nephilim for any length of time, you don't really need this question answered for you. But in case we've got listeners who are sceptical, I'm just going to lay out a few points quickly. We haven't got the time to go into depth here, but then again, I did write a book about it. Did I mention that already? It's called Answers to Giant Questions. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, or just follow the links from giantanswers.com. Uh, firstly, a plain reading of Genesis 6 illustrates that the appearance of the Nephilim on the scene provides the catalyst for escalating violence all over the face of the earth. Now, if you're small and weak and puny, you're not going to get far before someone puts you in your place. But if you are a mighty one, a hero of some sort, as our text implies, then it might be a bit harder for people to stop you from spreading violence all over the land. The first indicator that we have that these people are giants is the proliferation of violence that they brought about unabated. Secondly, there is another passage of scripture which mentions the Nephilim by name, and we find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. 
There we find that a tribe of warriors called the Anakim are referred to as Nephilim. These Anakim are spoken of as being tall, according to references in Deuteronomy. So if the unusually tall Anakim are comparable to the Nephilim, it's not unreasonable to suggest that the Nephilim were also unusually tall. I'm just going to throw a little disclaimer in here and say for the record that I don't think that any of the giants spoken of in Scripture were actually incredibly tall. What I mean by that is I think you're going to find people of comparable height on any given weekend playing NBA basketball. You have to realise that the average Israelite man in those times stood about five foot three tall. So even if you take the Greek Septuagint reading of the height of Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which makes him only six foot nine, as opposed to the Masoretic text at nine foot nine, that's still a giant compared to an ordinary guy of five foot three. I hate to put a dent in the whole giant mythos, but to be honest, Shaquille O'Neal would make Og of Bashan shake in his boots. So if anyone doubts the existence of giants because they thought that giants meant something like Jack and the Beanstalk kind of giants or something out of the Lord of the Rings, uh, I would encourage you to reconsider the biblical evidence because there's nothing in Scripture that says that they were much bigger than the tallest people we find among us today. And, of course, we have historical evidence as well, including eyewitness testimonies concerning the remains of those giants of old. Of course, I'm going to refer to Josephus again, who claimed to have witnessed the remains of pre-flood giants and actually stated that they were on public display at the time. This was in the first century AD. We also have the witness of another Greek historian and writer named Pausanias, who claimed to have been told by some indigenous folks about the remains of the descendants of Anak. And the claim was that these remains measured 15 feet in length. This was in the second century AD, and there are more of these. The eyewitness accounts from the Bible lands are important because they corroborate the biblical text by actually naming these giant tribes. Outside of eyewitness accounts, we also have comparative mythology from the surrounding context, that is the people groups around ancient Israel. We have ancient artefacts and monumental stone structures such as the massive fortifications in the biblical city of Gath, which was the hometown of Goliath. I could go on, but I think this is sufficient to make the point. There is far more evidence to suggest that the word we find in Genesis 6 verse 4 refers to giants rather than any other interpretive option available to us. It's not the fallen ones. It's not kings and conquerors. It's not Neanderthal man. It's giants. Once we get our head out of the clouds and stop thinking along the lines of fairy tales and that sort of thing, the interpretation just makes a whole lot more sense than the ignorant readings provided by people who haven't even stopped to see if the text says what they tell us it says. So there you go. There's my reasons why I conclude that the word Nephilim has nothing to do with being fallen and everything to do with being giants. And I think that provides a much more satisfactory answer than trying to reconcile that with the biblical text. That was uh, pretty comprehensive as always, and there's even more in the book. Your book? Yeah, so if you're looking for something to keep you occupied while we're on break before Season 3 starts, head over to Amazon, grab yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. This has been the podcast of the same name. We've been glad to have you with us, and we'll catch you again soon. See you then. Thanks for listening. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. 
in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yeah, I watched uh, the Batman on Sunday night. Superman versus Batman. Yeah. The worst. Yeah, agreed. Like, I'd rather watch Alien versus Predator again. Yeah, I'd agree with that statement. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Send him to the cooler or whatever. Okay. Get to the chopper. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> But we start reading about metal work, uh, content making, and uh, I've got some weird thing in my notes here. Um, metal work, uh, tent making is what it's meant to be. <laughs> like a wrestle. Oh. Uh, yes. Do you yeah. like wrestles? I don't know. They should be wrapped. That really didn't make any sense. Should have been, uh, you know, wrapped up like a Chico roll. Do they still make those, or is that as scarce as eggnog? Um, you know, the thing about Chico rolls, every time I eat them? one, oh. every time I eat one, I'm reminded of why I don't eat them. <laughs> um, and, you know, like Chico rolls were big, like maybe, I don't know, 1987. Yes. And I think that's when they cooked the last batch of them. And they've been sitting in the Bain Marie ever since. Because that's how it feels when you try and eat one. Um, but you keep you keep doing it by the sounds of it, so there must be some drug inside which gives you temporary. Oh, I know, I just you know I, I get nostalgic and I think, Oh yeah, I remember Chico Rolls, yeah, they were awesome, you know. I I just I should really give them another chance, you know, they can't be that bad, you know. I'll I'll give one a go, you know, for old time's sake, you know, it'll be awesome. And, uh, yeah, then I get one and I go, you know what? These things suck and they've always sucked and why do I keep falling for this? I nearly uh, bought one today. <laughs> Where do you get them the, from? Oh, I was, I was just at the servo. Oh, okay. I was sitting there uh, in the warmer and I was like, oh, man, I haven't had one of them for ages. Yeah, maybe that'll be something different. I'll try a Chico roll and I was like, what are you saying? Back away from... Yeah, chick a roll and a pack of Windy Blues, thanks, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it just doesn't doesn't work for me anymore. No, I understand. All right. Enough of you to have a fool. Yeah. Don't pity me. See ya. See ya.